All right, hello everyone. Welcome back. Oh, sorry. To... I thought you were going to play the intro music. People no. like that. People, even people, people like that. People, people who listen to the podcast will get to hear it. I like to hear you it. Record it whenever you want. It's on YouTube. You can just listen to it. Okay, okay I will. I will but listen to it now. Hours here. You can listen to it all the time. <laughs> the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history this is i think part of a series a little mini series we're doing called bunga has feelings so we're going to be talking a little bit about feelings um, we're not going to do all that analyzing and criticizing we usually do we're going to turn inward tear away those layers of repression like an onion you may even cry um, as you are wont to do when you peel an onion uh, to help us do this we we of course have a woman um, who is sensitive and in touch with their feelings. Unlike us, we're basically robots, fleshy, stupid robots, fleshy, stupid, horny robots. But a woman, a woman, Nina Power, uh, we are delighted to have her on. She's, if you're not familiar with her, a senior editor and a columnist at Compact. Uh, she's the author of What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents. So not only does she know what she wants and in touch with her own feelings, she also knows what us fleshy robots want, which is pretty impressive. I have to say, Nina, welcome. Oh my gosh. Thanks. <laughs> what do we want, incidentally? Well, there's a whole list in the book. I, I asked lots of my male friends. So there is a handy list. So it includes things like a shed and to be left alone and pussy and beer. But then I just ignored all of that. Instead. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, very good. Um, and of course, uh, I'm Alex Ogilvy in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also George Hoare in London and Philip Cunliffe, uh, I suppose, in Canterbury, England also, um, which is a small appendage of London, sort of. <laughs> it's close enough, whatever. England, England is an appendage of London. That's accurate. No, oh, I got it all wrong. I, not as if I lived there for 12 years. No, no it's whatever. accurate, accurate. Um, yeah, that is true. Well, it's, yeah, a, a, what is it, a, a, a housing market with a society attached? Um, I think that still applies. Um, anyway, um, to get on to the, to the actual theme of this, we're going to start talking about um, anger and hatred um, and the relationship between each other. Um, I think sometimes they get bound up. They're not exactly the same. Um, but I think it's interesting because um, as part of this relaunch that Compact Magazine are doing, uh, Nina has written some notes in their new Substack, stack. Uh, and just, this came out just today, so I thought it was, it was quite appropriate. So I'll just quote from it. Um, I recall my grandfather speaking only infrequently, though kindly when he did. I never remember him complaining. I might, it might be worth experimenting with a return to, if not exactly repression, then at least a dignified attempt to grin and bear it. Complaining simply annoys everyone around you, and it's not clear that it helps solve any of the problems, physical, mental, spiritual, we are naturally heir to. So I thought that was maybe an interesting place to start, Nina, because, uh, you know, do we complain too much? I don't mean we on this podcast. Obviously, we complain too much on this podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, 
as as a society, um, to the extent that we can speak of, of, of a single society that we live in, um, do we complain too much, or do we maybe not complain enough? I mean, you, someone might say who's trying to be politically radical, say actually we don't complain enough. There's all manner of abuses and taking of advantages that go unchallenged. So you know you might have the electricity grid privatized, which then raises its prices, even though it promised it wouldn't. Things like that. We don't complain enough about those things, surely. So um, what do you mean by Maybe we should be a little bit more repressed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here. I would, I would say that my interest in the mood for politics, the best mood for doing politics, goes back quite a long way. And I originally did some research on empathy, which was a term that was becoming quite dominant in sort of activist circles maybe 10 years ago. Um, obviously open to abuse and critique. Um, we ended up with people sort of asking for payment for emotional labor and kind of really degenerate bastardizations of the social um, bonds that that sort of make us friends and keep us together. And Sorry, Nina, just to be clear, what was the context in which payment was being demanded for emotional labor? So I guess, you, the, okay, so people started talking about emotional labor, which obviously has a long history and kind of left-wing feminist work, um, you know, often, often as a critique, the idea that women are sort of supposed to be there precisely as these emotional support animals and this kind of thing, um, and that we're supposed to have a better understanding of emotion. I would, I would like to say that I have zero understanding of uh, emotion better than anyone else, and in fact, I've often been accused of being way too rational and masculine for my own good. So um, I'm speaking only theoretically. I have no emotions either, um, which is <laughs> which is great. Um, but how I, does that how does that feel? <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay. that, was your, that was your joke. Yeah. yeah, it was. It wasn't. I mean, it was it a joke? Not really. It, yeah. you, you gave it the response it deserved, to be fair. Can, can save that one for George's gist. The, the, the section we'll be introducing next month. George's, listener George's gist? That doesn't sound very. It doesn't sound great, lovely. but it was. It's no, a it doesn't, fault. but it's listeners. The listeners wanted, so we're going to give them George's gist. It's important to spell it G-I-S-T and it's about me summarising episodes for the executive listener who only has 10 seconds to right. listen to an episode. I, I can't believe that's a thing. Is this the sort of TikTokification of everything? <laughs> yeah. It's um, what they're trying to get me to do. We'll that's, see. That's weird. Okay. Um, anyway, sorry, there's a lot going on here. So I... So emotional labor, it, it became a kind of common currency. But I think what people understood by that was, well, because it's work, because it's labor, it must be paid. Um, and because there's this feminist critique of, you know, women in particular being sort of used and abused for their listening and soothing and sympathetic, hypothetically, um, that we could also monetize these things. And that would be a form of class revenge or something like that. I don't know. It was absolutely crazy. So you ended up with situations where people were saying, you know, okay, I can listen to you moan for an hour, but then you have to Venmo me 20 pounds. So people were sort of setting themselves up as kind of fake therapists, but it, 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 reveals a real need and a desire obviously for communication so like every time we're talking about these things we're looking at them symptomatically and trying to understand the deeper social meaning of them so I started off being really interested in empathy I was obviously a very active on the left particularly around the student movement and a lot of what happened it happened to me as well was burnout and um, extreme forms of um, feelings of injustice and anger, you know, and I was going out with Alfie, who was nearly killed by the police, and then he was on trial for four years. And obviously, this this caused, as it would do, 
um, enormous amounts of very painful feelings, you know, feelings of, um, you know, desire for revenge uh, against the police, against the state, desire to protect Alfie, who was sort of not only physically, but also like legally going through this hell and possibly going to prison. I mean, it was just so obviously unjust and um, it, it creates this sort of white hot burning feeling. It's very, very unpleasant. And I could see this in a lot of people politically. And it goes back to, I think, the original um, point um, that Alex was making about, well, aren't there loads of things to feel angry about? And the answer is yes. But anger and the desire for revenge, it ultimately struck me, is not the right mood for doing politics in necessarily, I suppose. Let me let me caveat that. The, the, the feeling of injustice and the feeling of outrage, um, absolutely. But ultimately, those feelings can destroy you. And they nearly destroyed me. I nearly died. <laughs> like lots of people had serious burnout around the student movement. That part of the, the London left, whatever, um, kind of turned inwards and lots of people really struggling with addiction, bad mental health. And, you know, we lost every struggle for sort of years on end and we didn't really have a very good way of dealing with it. Um, could you could you maybe just say a bit more about that? Because it would be I'd be curious to hear. I mean, um, you know, I mean, obviously, the yourself and Dalphy were in a very particular position, given, um, you know, given um Alfie being assaulted by the police and everything, and then being accused of, um, you know, accused of assaulting the police and that leading to the four year court case and so on. But I mean, presumably that was exceptional for, um, um, for the student, for the kind of the fees, anti fees student left. Um, uh, I mean, so I'm just curious, I suppose, about was it the, or maybe, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that and maybe kind of instances of being brutalized by the police are much more common. But I'm curious as to, you know, what kind of led to this burnout being so common, even among people who presumably weren't, um, you know, uh, so kind of um, at the sharp end of um, the state in the way that Alfie and yourself were. Well, I, I think actually a lot of people did have an experience at those protests of various and various quite shocking forms of police behaviour, like horses were charging into crowds and quite a lot of people were actually hurt, hit by batons. I mean, it got very violent, um, particularly on the 9th of December 2010. People were kettled multiply. I think if you've never had an experience of that kind of crowd control, I mean, if obviously if you're a working class football fan and that kind of thing, you probably have. But if you're a middle class student who's like 16 or 18, you know, and this is your sort of experience of maybe one of your first protests and you're really yeah. quite yeah. quite scared I and I think it did actually have a very powerful effect on quite a lot of people who were there or who saw the footage um obviously we had the riots six months later um 2011 um that was very interesting and the, and the kind of connection between the student protests and the riots is is a I, I find a fascinating um you know question to pose I don't necessarily have an answer but I do think there is a, a connection mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people were also in occupation in 2009, actually around Gaza, but then it turned into occupations around the closure of departments. So Middlesex philosophy, that's where Alfie kind of got involved and I studied there as well. Um, and I, yeah, so I think there were lots of material experiential situations that people had of occupying, working together, being on protest. It was sort of more embodied and more physical than we might imagine or might remember um even and certainly because we well because we lost the fees battle right you know it was it was a very 
um, actually selfless mode of protest because we were campaigning on behalf of people to come. Do you know what I mean? Most of the people there had been paying lesser fees or I was literally the last cohort that didn't pay fees at all to go to university. And that completely has transformed that difference between going to university for free and paying fees has totally transformed as we saw. And as everyone predicted, exactly what would happen, the commodification of education, the turning of a degree into a product, uh, the inability to have really any critical kind of discussions at university anymore, and all of the things we said would happen, happened. And so I think everyone was extremely disheartened um, about that about that failure. And then there were kind of loads of others, and it just became miserable. Um, I mean, it, it, it just so occurred to me just... that, like, that it, it might be something of, of youth to be angry on behalf of something a little bit more sort of impersonal um, or if not impersonal, not related to you that it's, or the, to put it in the opposite way that kind of with the progress of age, people tend to become a little bit more focused on their own circle, their own family, defending what they have, you know, their family life, for example, and getting very angry about things that breach that um, and have less time and less political passion and anger for other people. So, you know, the case of students, it was like I was involved in those student protests as well. And you're protesting on behalf of future generations of students, not your own. You were fine. You actually, you know, I paid some, but not very much. Um, so I wonder if there's like a, a kind of a, um, I'm sorry, generational, but, um, you know, kind of passing through life, a life stage element to this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of um, cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. I think, you know, that people perhaps do become more... Um, I don't know, acquiescent, more accepting of the reality as they find it proximate to them and and these kind of ideals go by the wayside. Um, I suppose just to go back to the emotion point, it's just, it really does strike me that this kind of anger that we had and our inability to deal with kind of failure and the subsequent turning inwards and attacking each other um, and kind of destroying um, forms of solidarity. You could say, well, these these were weak bonds anyway. Like these were bonds that were forged not necessarily out of um, a class position exactly or in the usual way we might historically understand solidarity um, but really they were sort of temporary and yeah maybe a symptom of, of youth in a way I mean I was older than a lot of people in the student process because I already had a lectureship um, by the time the student uh, the fees stuff happened um, but I'd only just uh, graduated and got my PhD so um yeah could i was so just i suppose two follow-up questions um one is do you think the there was anything more about the kind of the climate of the time um the kind of politically uh with the government perhaps or with the aftermath of the financial crash i'm just curious if that those kinds of contextual factors also fed into the atmosphere that you describe the um, the kind of emotional, the turning inward and the emotional kind of um, responses you've described. But also, um, how important was that experience to um, your kind of your political journey? Um, because I understand that you kind of see yourself as someone who's departed the left since then. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good first question. Um, I think you're right that it, it's actually a very important feature of this, that it was indeed just after the financial crash and that our enemies, as it were, were the state, were the government. It was the Tories. It was the police. It was the state. It was it was the, the law courts. It was everyone who was trying to push through the fees vote. And in that sense, our, we were opposed, precisely opposed to, you know, um, state 
and uh, forces of oppression as we saw them. And this gave us like a common enemy, but it was an enemy um, upwards, right? It wasn't uh, a horizontal enemy or, or, or a downward enemy, as it were. And that was a very unifying force because it was very obvious that the imposition of austerity and the cuts to uh, public libraries, universities and so on were all part and parcel of uh, the same project to immiserate and to blame people for the, the economic crisis, um, whose fault it precisely was not. Um, you know, the bailing out of the banks was in recent memory and so on. Yeah, so it's it's so that's contextually really important. You're um, completely right to bring that up. Um, it feels very different now, even though we still have a Tory government and many of the same, you know, horrible uh, neoliberal policies and however we'd like to describe it. Um, in terms of my political journey, I think I felt around 2013, 2014, that something was going quite badly wrong, at least in some of the kind of activist and lefty circles I was moving in. Um, and it was partly to do with the transition online, where people were started attacking each other in person, not in person, as it were, like denouncing each other and me tooing each other. It was a little bit before me too, but people were still kind of doing that kind of thing, accusing people of being... Um, abusive and 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 whatever, um, because I think this turn in was because of the failure, like the classic kind of, it, it, you know, how do you shore up the in group? Well, you create enemies, you throw them out. Oh, we can be unified against that guy. Basic, you know, social anthropological stuff. And I saw this stuff happening, and I found it really horrifying. And I, I was trying to say to people, look, we need to have these conversations offline. Like we need to speak in person. Um, most people are trying to do their best. In fact, we all are. Like, we're not the enemy of each other. And, but I think the, when you start to analyze the mechanism and you start to say, well, this person is being cut off unfairly and, you know, there's no equivalent of due process. I mean, people started talking yeah. about accountability, but accountability never really happened. And if mm -hmm. it did, it was sort of uh, terrifying by all accounts, it was literally people just sort of shouting at someone in a room and them going like, oh, and then them saying, the group saying, well, that's not an apology. And and even where people apologised, people would say, well, that's not a real apology. And so it was, you know, this post-Christian culture where there's literally no forgiveness, no possibility of atonement or forgiveness or any uh, understanding that we're all capable of harm and we're all broken and we shouldn't set ourselves up in judgment and and you know too much if you see what I mean like we're not we're not in a superior pure position of judgment and it, yeah. it, it just got it got really really nasty um and you say you say post-christian but you think it you think it's that kind of rather than um I don't know a kind of a, a recreated kind of Maoist dynamic in in far-left activist circles I I think it's complicated but yeah there was that sense of the um you know what do you call it the struggle session um you know where you can't actually defend yourself ultimately because it's not about that it's about the scapegoat and but I think it's weird because a lot of this stuff is always being done in the name of the victim which we would say is a sort of maybe Christian inheritance um but speaking on behalf of others which is really terrible thing to do but lots of people were trying to do that saying you're offending this hypothetical group or this person whatever and I think the moment you identify the mechanism, then the mechanism will come for you. And that's exactly what happened. And I sort of knew it was coming. I could feel it coming. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, I might as well be cancelled horribly. And, and I was 
uh, repeatedly, but especially in 2018 when I was a member of the Labour Party and I posted something because I'd read the interrogations of some of the female members of the party that had been leaked and they were saying, can we have a, a democratic discussion about the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act? And they were basically being suspended and shouted at and, you know, in these private conversations with other members of the Labour Party and then expelled from the party. And I I just thought this is really wrong, even if you and I didn't necessarily even agree or have that much understanding of what the the issues were at that point. But I just thought this is not how to conduct, you know, this is not how people who are ostensibly on the same side should be speaking to Mm. each other. Um, yeah, or or indeed, even people who are politically serious should speak to each other, which maybe right. seems counterintuitive because you think you know your anger is a testament to your seriousness and commitment. But um, I think often, often, <laughs> often it isn't. It runs the other way. And I mean, you said earlier something about you know anger and particularly vengeance is probably not a good way to do politics. Mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of it, but particularly with regard to vengeance, you know, there's a lot of particularly if I'm being critical of left wing politics is that it's very eatable in that regard. I mean, it's like, fuck you, dad politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, um, and often by people who are far too old to be engaging in that kind of thing. You know, I get it if teenagers do that, that's what you're going to do. Um, but what, what I wonder is, there's a whole discussion about kind of the repression of emotion and political passions um, through the whole end of history period. I mean, we a discussion we in our own small way participated in as well, but I mean, especially thinkers that we um, have looked up to like Wolfgang Strake or um, Slavoj Žižek have looked at the way at that post-politics or the kind of foreclosure of political contestation comes accompanied or rather involves a sort of repression of politics and that, that, that repression then kind of um, fails at a certain point, politics bursts back. Um, but there's like an effective level to that, I think, which is really important too, right? That like the repression is not just of um, of saying, hey, you can't do that or, you know, give us our due. It's also a repression of kind of emotions like like anger and even hatred of, of those who have wronged you. Um, and I wonder whether that's changed or even come full circle, you know, like whether whether now there's a kind of politics actually is, is overly ridden with emotion in a way that it was kind of a little bit bereft of it for and then kind of a bit bloodless for for 20 30 years yeah i think that's a really good um question i've just been reading quite a lot of this very strange polish book um called political ponderology i don't know i think i maybe mentioned it to one of you before um we'll come on on to that in i guess a little bit more more depth in just a bit yeah yeah, go on well well he talks about the way in which societies can become hysterical, like they they can become over-emotional. And I I wonder if that's to some extent what's happened. And again, it maybe in the first place had good intentions, like why why shouldn't we express our anger? Why shouldn't we be sad if we're sad? Why shouldn't we, um, you know, feel all these things and and talk about them and have this kind of therapeutic culture? Um, But there there are kind of downsides to that too <laughs> not not least the kind of therapization of everything um and it i suppose if we say that sort of therapy therapy has maybe replaced some of the kind of functions that religion played or christianity in particular played then we have to ask which specific modes which specific affects and which specific moods and modes have shifted or been eliminated so just to go back to the point i was trying to make about a kind of post-christian you know, strange fusion of some Christian ideas, equality, victimhood, universality, sort of, um, 
not internationalism, but whatever, um, some kind of humanism, but at the same time, without this um, idea of like forgiveness and atonement. And it, it struck me that when I was thinking back about the 90s and the kind of people on the socialist left that I was encountering or people who are into raves and, and so on, that there was much more um, room for making mistakes, whether it was like politically, conceptually or personally, you know, as we all do. And that there was a kind of humour and openness to other people being human, which is to say fallible. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not saying excusing terrible behaviour, but I mean in the sense that, like, we all make mistakes and we're all capable of harm. And I, and I think that idea got kind of um, translated into, no, there are some people who cause harm and there are some people who are victims. Um, and that's very, very, very dangerous, especially when we start tying those things to groups by by identity definitions, right? And we say, oh, this group are always a victim and, you know, these people are always an oppressor, right? This is very, very dangerous precisely because this question of hatred then comes in and then you say, well, we're allowed to hate the people who hate, right? So if we say there's a group over there who are somehow filled with hatred, we don't know why, they just are, right? We can call them, I don't know, uh, racists or xenophobes or whatever, but we're allowed to do whatever we like to them. <laughs> do you yeah. see what I mean? But I think Scotland even has a minister for victims, which I thought, which I was oh, wow. shocked to discover. Um, I, I think Scotland, as, as particularly Phil and Jordan have pointed out many times on this podcast, maybe some of the, one of the most advanced places in terms of the institutionalization of woke, for lack of a better word, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean that that I think if you're in, in doubt as to the how much victim culture has become institutionalized and has become even part of a mode of rule, I think that is good testament to it that one would have a minister for victims um and 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 it's not even i from what i can tell because i think it's also ministers for victims and community safety or something like that i mean really sort of orwellian job title um and so it's not even just something which is like an appendage of of um you know the home office or the interior minister or justice minister rather um where it's purely concerned with the courts and you know like the the victims of crime which already be maybe a little bit sort of insidious but but it really is just uh, presumably directed at society in general and all those who might be who might be victims i just wanted um just before we get more into that um, nina i just wanted to loop back to um you're describing your exile from the left over the um over these kind of internal um these internal disputes within the labor party so why did you um i suppose what made you decide abandonment was what you had to do rather than i don't know like you know holding on for something better or um or uh, trying to kind of um you know, trying to kind of set out like this is what the left should be about. You people are not about this. Um, I'm just curious, I suppose, about your, you know, the specific maneuvers and responses to the challenge you confronted at that point. Yeah, I mean, insofar as it matters, you know, and it's, I'm not sure it does at the individual level so much, but I, I mean, I would say I still have quite a lot of leftist positions. They just might not look particularly leftist um, at this point because they're, probably more to do with 
how to put it, certain forms of preservationism, certain forms of localism, certain forms of defending communities and families against the state, right? So kind of a Lashian leftism in some ways, um, in concern with limits to growth, concern with um, technology, critical of it. I'm very Illichian, I'm very influenced by Ivan Illich. Um, and I... <sighs> It's 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 difficult because part of this is theoretical, part of it is contextual, and it felt to me that the the left I was a part of in inverted commas in London was not necessarily the left. It was something that gone badly wrong, and um, the Labour Party were not representing Labour, and they certainly weren't behaving in a democratic way. And I suppose I'd been inc feeling increasingly uneasy with the. The personal way people were treating each other and then specifically the way women were being treated and one of my tipping points was actually seeing a video of Helen Steele who was a hero to the left um, for standing up against McDonald's and, and you know challenging corporate power and she's a very um, wonderful woman you know and she had been a victim of spy cops you know she'd really been targeted by the state and anybody on the anarchist left or the labor left felt that Helen Steele was this great figure and I did too and and she started asking questions in a very like open-minded way about some of the stuff around gender and she got absolutely smashed and I just couldn't believe it I, I just thought yeah what you're gonna give up on this woman because if this, you know like as if you're gonna forget everything else that she's done and what she represents and yeah I, I was just shocked and that was happening a lot to a lot of women I respected and I sort of couldn't live with the cognitive dissonance anymore and I thought there's something really wrong <laughs> here. Yeah it does seem to speak to the um and a kind of culture wars alignment that is demanded of people where you need to have every you know you go down through the columns like views on this views on that views on you know uh you know cultural consumption uh, tv they prefer whatever and then you need to have the correct you know, selection from each one. And so this forms a person which is like this and it has and it has their those attributes and, and someone on the other side has opposing attributes, but you can have no kind of heterogeneity in your kind of composition. Um right. and and you're allowed to hate the person then who who doesn't kind of completely who doesn't fit the the, the model of what you're supposed to be. So it's actually incredibly conformist actually, um, the more I think about it. Oh completely. So I think basically a lot of people in reality have views from across the political spectrum. Not necessarily a wide range, but they definitely would have views that are more leftist, maybe they're redistributionists, maybe they're interested in high taxation, uh, but maybe they're a social conservative, maybe they go to church and they want more families or do you know what I mean? Like in reality, people actually are not straightforwardly left or right. I think most people have a heterodox collection of positions. And I think when I came across this sort of diagnosis of post-liberalism and the idea that actually we need to give up on this French revolutionary division between left and right and um, think differently about what politics is, um, I was quite struck by that as a diagnosis. And then also the kind of question about what comes after. I mean, it's a question you're obviously very interested in, <laughs> given your whole the whole premise of your um, your whole podcast. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, um, I just wanted to to move things on, maybe a, a little bit from the British left to to evil, um, if there is uh, <laughs> distance there. Um, yeah, because this is one of the things that we did we did want to discuss, and 
I guess, you know, wh- why is evil interesting? Why is this a, you know, um, you, you referenced this this book, Political, uh, and, and this is not a word I'm familiar with, ponerology. Um, but yeah, but I guess more more than the psychological perspective that that book takes that we'll, we'll get onto, why is this an interesting question in general, like from a theological or historical perspective? Yeah, I think I'm always interested in concepts that people want to say are not interesting or passe or Mm. irrelevant or wrong, right? So, for example, nature would be one of these. Essentialism is literally like the worst thing you can be is an essentialist. Um, Evil, oh, no, well, that's just a sort of uh, ridiculous old-fashioned way of, of, of talking about things and we've got explanations for everything now. And you have this weird fusion when it comes to evil of a certain kind of Nietzschean critique of evil. Oh, that's something that, you know, weak people project. Um, but with a sort of liberal denial of evil, right, which is to say, oh, no, there's just this kind of uh, pluralism and everyone has different beliefs. And, and you know, maybe we occasionally need mm. to punish people, but there's no such thing as evil. Evil doesn't exist. And so I'm I'm quite interested in these sorts of things. And I... I've had encounters (laughs) that I might describe that I can only, well, I can't describe them. And I suppose I'm interested in, in those questions of like the indescribable. And I think that politics, yeah, quite rightly is, is in a sort of modernist enlightenment mode. And we think that we can either sort of rationalize everything or, um, yeah, give an explanation. And I think there are there are certain things, even in this modern world, that we can't straightforwardly give an explanation. For. Could you give us could you give us an example, if you don't mind talking about one of the experiences or or I, something which isn't kind of experiential, just in terms of something which doesn't fit? Because it seems to me like if you're right, it's a tremendous challenge to um the belief that politics can actually address the um the problems of the world because that is that is the great premise of the enlightenment that politics you know that the 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 ills that afflict us can be um can be collectively resolved Mm. by by the right ideas the right institutions the right policies the right kind of government and what have you yeah absolutely and and in that sense i think the the longer tradition the older traditions the ones that have just survived barely um, Christianity would be the obvious one. And Christianity and liberalism are not indissociable. I mean, Christianity is very influential on liberalism. I mean, it, just because you get rid of God, it doesn't mean you get rid of Christian values. Uh, you might get rid of some of them, like forgiveness. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they come from that history. You know, we, we have to be sort of materialist about ideas and the way they translate um, through through time, even if bits of them are lopped off. And... So I think there is politics cannot explain everything, right? I do, I agree. I, I well, you weren't saying this, but the premise of the Enlightenment, you know, oh, we can shine a light on everything, and we can get clarity, and we can give a causal explanation. Uh, I would say, in an encounter, you know, I've, I've okay to go back to this question of maybe hatred, right? Like I've been very hated. Like I know I'm very hated by a lot of people, and it's very very weird. It's a very, very strange experience to be hated by a lot of people and to feel hate um, or read about being hate, you know, how awful you are, what a terrible person you are. And especially when you think you're doing good. Right. Well, I mean, I if, you, if you think <laughs> if you're being provocative or whatever, like, like, well, OK, people are going to hate me for this. 
Right, and I don't, I don't, I don't straightforwardly think that I'm doing good. I think like everybody, I've probably done good things and bad things, and I, you know, definitely done things I think were good for other people and so on, but also done incredibly stupid things and and so on, and that's that's completely normal. But so to to try to understand, I suppose that affect or emotion that's coming from other people, and to understand that they feel betrayed or something like this or whatever, and that they you know, they're sort of channeling something. And in the context also of the kind of expansion of hate speech legislation and the kind of curbing of various um, claims, even where they, they appear to be factually true, they might be understood to be offensive at the subjective and changing hate speech from being an objective um, criterion to being a sub subjective one. This is a very dangerous move. Um, but yeah, I suppose... Um, Gosh, where was I going with this? The <laughs> remind me of the the last well, point. It was well, so I mean, let, let, I'll put it this way, actually, and mm -hmm. and to kind of set this up a little bit more, it strikes yeah. me that you know we were talking about anger and about hatred, and you can see how those two things are are connected, even if they're not the same. Um, but it's also you know evil is a question which isn't very discussed today, I think, and I'm you know I'm I'm not a theologically minded person, so it's not a, a question that I've particularly pondered in my life, I have to admit. Um, but it does seem to me that hatred is held up as particularly in, in liberal society, though increasingly, I think everywhere as, as the right comes to kind of reflect back the same stuff that kind of woke liberalism does, but it, but in reverse, um, that hatred is held up as as the prime evil, indeed, in our society. Mm -hmm. And I, I've, I've been kind of perplexed by that, because it seems not to explain very much, it even kind of verges on being a redundancy, perhaps. Um, or, or maybe, or maybe it just completely misses the mark because um, evil is something which is impersonal. Maybe there are kind of grand evils that happen, which are not a, a reflection of the fact that someone hated someone else. You know that there were interpersonal frictions, which seems to me be perhaps by by the by. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we would, I guess we would generally differentiate between sort of natural evil and moral evil. So natural evil, like bad bad things happening to good people, and we don't really have an explanation. Like, why why did this earthquake like kill loads of perfectly nice people or whatever? Or so I, I guess I'm more focused on the the question of moral evil or or ev human evil, as it were, like the ways in which we behave to one towards one another. And I suppose just to yeah to try to link the question of hatred to the question of evil it it strikes me that one way of thinking about evil whether we look at René Girard who's actually become very popular and very useful for a lot of people to try to understand various anthropological mechanisms around groups and desire and envy rivalry competition um scapegoating um and um yeah and and also um denunciation because Girard links Satan to to the denouncer right so the satan the satan satan is the the force it's a process i mean satan isn't a character satan is not this little black drawing uh despite the history of representation the history of art but rather uh, a process in which denunciation occurs um as somebody is presented as um a problem for the group whether they are or not you know they become the the focus of of hatred and then the sacrifice one way or another of this person then then seeks to get the group back together again because they're unified against a common enemy and and so on and so i suppose i came to understand at least had a, a rough definition of of evil being 
in a way, not talking to somebody, <laughs> which sounds, which doesn't sound like a good definition of evil at all. <laughs> Certainly not a historical one, but but rather a sort of refusal to um, to to deal with the other. Right? It's much easier to say, mm. "Go away!" Like you know, we hate you. You ostracized. You know, you're never going to work again. Like you're a bad person. Um, rather than listen to what the person has to say or to disagree with them or, you know, and we've seen this happen a lot to a lot of people, right? It's It's been a very um, common and, and dominant mode of social behaviour or antisocial behaviour, you could say, which is simply to cut people off because they yeah. dis- disagree on vaccines or Brexit or gender or whatever. You, I mean, I guess you can see two reasons why you would want to do that to kind of the evil um person and the first is that you know and i think this is how evil often functions as this kind of psychological concept if you can't explain something like child killings like this is this is human evil like you can't there's no point talking to them because they're not human or there's not you're not going to get anything out of it and the second is maybe that it's like it could spread somehow you know mm-hmm. this is actually dangerous like you have to be careful of evil because it can kind of um you know it it can be contagious i mean why that would be the case you can kind of dig into that but this is kind of as far as i understand it this essentially one of the arguments in this this book political ponerology is that and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this and you you kind of uh, referred to it before as this strange um, polish psychologist had had written this book and i think that's probably uh, quite a, a good a good summary a good gist if you will um that essentially totalitarianism comes from you have this small evil group of psychopaths and then it kind of it spreads it diffuses you have these spellbinders and you have these kind of i don't know it spreads like a virus throughout the whole body politic so is this a kind of um a kind of a a theory then to kind of bring it back to what we're talking about before of like the dangers of of letting small groups of evil people interact with other people in a society yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a problem in the in the presentation of the the idea of pathocracy, or, or you know, because it seems too reductive, or it's it's a, it's a difficult idea to swallow, and we wouldn't because the problem is once we start saying oh there's a small group of evil people and we can blame them, then you end up back in the same situation, right? That precisely the situation that you're trying to describe rather than invoke and then uh, act upon, right? So. Um, I, and I think Lobachevsky, the author of this book, who's a kind of Polish dissident, who's writing under a commun- communist regime in the 1980s, but he's trying to look at underlying the underlying features of societies that have gone wrong, <laughs> let's say, regardless of their right. supposed political. Um, and, and, you know, maybe a more serious way of putting it would be like, why do bad ideas take hold? Right. It's, it goes back to this point in my Mises and Contagion. Right. Why, why can you convince certain historical moments people to do terrible things um you know or to believe things that are manifestly not true and we could talk about this in a post-truth age we have a kind of battle as always for status and for power um and often politics just starts to look like a kind of um a battleground without any commitment to truth or anything like that like it's just people competing for power um you know, and as a philosopher, I'm I'm loyal <laughs> to to philosophy, uh, and I have to think that there's something outside of politics, um, and I have to be committed to truth, and um, so I suppose it's an attempt to explain at a deep level why uh, bad ideas take hold, 
um we don't necessarily have to sort of reduce it to psychopaths i mm. think this is kind of but it's interesting to think about how that does function as an operative theory um also for people trying to understand the world right we we've seen various um claims about sort of elite pedophilia and and these these sorts of claims are like both true and not true exactly in the way that they're presented right and obviously a marxist critique of these sorts of supposed conspiracy theories would be to say something like this doesn't take into account any of the material materialist uh, and economic dimensions and the questions of political struggle um, but rather seeks to um, give an idealist almost explanation for oh there's some evil over there and that's why everything bad is happening right and that's a very dangerous um, sort of way of thinking um, nevertheless um, I have definitely encountered people <laughs> Uh, who do not seem to have the same theory of mind, uh, the, the working folk psychological theory of mind, which is basically that other people are like fundamentally trying to do their best and that we can, if we disagree, we could probably talk about it and, um, you know, people make mistakes and, and that kind of mm. thing, you know, a little bit of social forgiveness and flexibility. Um, I've definitely encountered and been very, very targeted by people who do not hold that same theory of, <laughs> of mind mm. or you know, social psychology. And I suppose part of this is just an attempt very naively and earnestly to try to understand what happened to me and to many other people um, in the last <laughs> 10 or so years. So, mm, of course, yeah. I'm, I'm personally motivated, um, but I don't want to I don't want to remain in a sad or a reactive position. I want to understand that in this sense, I'm an enlightenment person. Right? Well, well, actually, I was just going to say, I mean, to kind of piggyback on um, Phil's question earlier, it would seem to me that it would be a serious indication of degeneration politically if we were increasingly holding people to be kind of fundamentally evil or to be possessed by kind of evil drives and that that would explain the world that would like that would seem to me a real um, regression vis-a-vis -vis any sort of enlightenment idea of what it means to kind of be human, be sociable and social, um, and kind of in some way try to get along and improve the world. That there might be a premise of you know, and and even a materialist understanding that you know the bad people aren't doing bad things because they're bad, but because that's their position in society and they're just following their interests. And that interest, indeed. Um, can be kind of denuded of any sort of mythological kind of, or I don't know if mythological is the right, right way to put it, but some kind of metaphysical element, you know, and that interests are just kind of naked and simple and and okay, right? And you might say the, they're narrowly following their self-interest. Okay, there's more to life than that, but we understand that. We can reckon with that and and oppose it perhaps or go along with that interest or try to channel that, that self-interest into a greater collective self-interest or whatever it might be. Um, and if we're not able to see interest anymore and that it becomes just a reduced down to some evil drive or something kind of unfathomable, that would seem to me a real regression. And I, and I wonder, like, I'm just thinking of like areas of life where I've witnessed that. Cause you, you mentioned Nina, like, you know, you encounter people who don't have the same kind of folk philosophy of mind or whatever. And I'm like, well, I guess I would encounter that. I mean, amongst kind of religious fundamentalists, I mean, here like evangelical Christians in Brazil very often, even if on a personal interpersonal basis, very personable and nice and whatever have a notion that there's evil there's the devil around the corner and that people are acting for very deeply evil reasons and you can't reckon with them and indeed also the kind of woke left also in some ways as well that there's kind of um 
yeah, that people are driven by evil or indeed the kind of vulgar Marxism, which kind of always floats around here and there of, you know, the capitalists are bad because they're bad people um, and mm -hmm. they fundamentally want to eat babies and uh, whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of murky waters, um, undoubtedly, all of this stuff, because precisely the trap you don't want to fall into is the trap you're trying to diagnose, right? You're trying to understand. Um, right, I, right. No, I'm not saying like those people are bad because they <laughs> they think about no, no, evil. No, no, but, but, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about myself, I suppose, in the sense of like turning to evil, you know, when precisely it's one of those things that has been put to one side because it seems to lead to these kinds of, um, demonizations right because you end up wanting to place it somewhere other than yourself right and I mm. you know I'm I'm enough of a sort of psychoanalytic thinker to uh, you know and I think the psychoanalysis is is in some ways compatible with certain parts of Christianity which is to say our fundamental lack our fundamental brokenness the the fact that we are a combination of active and passive masculine and feminine and so on and the same would go for our capacity to do harm and to be harmed, right? And and somehow these sort of really basic observations that you get in all kinds of different modes of thinking um, seem to have been forgotten. And we there's a form of solidarity, which I think is an understanding of what it is to be human that includes everybody. It, it can't... I, I know this is... this. It's, comes into tension with things like class antagonism. And I've always really hated that kind of vulgar Marxism, which yeah, simply demonizes capitalists and, and, and makes it and personifies um, in that way. Like it, so mm. we both need to sort of maintain a kind of structural analysis, institutional analysis and so on. But I think one of the things that the, the parts of the left that I was involved in maybe failed to do was to also have an understanding of something like individual choice or conscience. And, and this had bad consequences for people who are suffering from addictions or people who are in trouble because everything was just blamed on capitalism. You know what I mean? It's like, mm. oh, well, this person's like miserable and drinking too much and taking drugs. And well, it's that's just capitalism, isn't it? it, it there was no sense of like, well, actually this person can make decisions and we can help them to get out of this obviously objectively bad state um and so there's something defeatist about the structural if it's only structural do you know what i mean you just blame the system yeah well as i, I, as I, I like wanted... to say uh you know uh, structure in the streets agency in the sheets um, that's my motto. Sure. Uh, don't inc don't inc yeah. Don't encourage him, Nina. Don't, don't encourage him. Yeah. Um, I had I had a quick. So I suppose I had a quick follow up question, and then a more um, maybe a more uh, complicated one. But I, the first one is, <coughs> excuse me. The first one is, um, should we not hate our enemies then? Well, not if you're Christian. And I think that you don't have to be Christian. I'm not saying that therefore the Christians are right, but I think we have to understand why Christianity uh, worked out that this was not necessarily the correct thing to do, even when one is opposing injustice, or especially when one is opposing injustice. Partly, and what what is the, yeah what is yeah. the Christian answer? Well, I mean, you you're supposed to love your enemies, right? Um, the reason, well, I think that you are supposed to love your enemies is to understand that they are not as distant from you as you might want them to be, that you are also your 
friend and your enemy as well. And like when you say, love your neighbor as thyself, right? It's also to say, there is nothing really that separates you from your neighbor. You're not special. You're not, you're not different in some ways. Everybody is, has a soul. Everybody has conscience. Everybody has the capacity to decide what to do. The, the Christian solution to the problem of the violent spiral to turn the other cheek is a way of um, ending, right? Mimetic rivalry, as Sherrod would put it. It's, it's, it's pretty much the only way you could say that Christianity worked out how to stop um, vengeance, right? How to stop the inevitable retribution. And would you, and would you kind of, um, would you take this politically, like down the direction of um, Gandhian nonviolence and that kind of thing? Would that be the kind of the political conclusion for you, or, or is it simply to understand the rationale for kind of short circuiting, like you say, these kind of violent spirals? I think. First and foremost, the second point, I think that we have to understand the Christian solution, as it were, in inverted commas, as a historical and social innovation, right? That it that it came at a certain point, that it was responding to certain material conditions, that it has a great profundity and a great wisdom to it. Also, you know, in our personal lives, you know, to not escalate things and, and whatever. But it doesn't, I, I don't think Christianity is fundamentally... Um, a kind of a form of passivity or passivism in the sense that Nietzsche attacks it for it, you know, and he conflates Christianity with democracy and feminism and science and, you know, anything that has this other idea of another world or democracy or flattening out, you know, this, this aristocratic critique of everything that has a sort of egalitarian dimension, whether it's equal before God or equal in the political sphere, in the democratic ideal. Um, so I... Yeah, I, I don't think Christianity says that we shouldn't hate lies, for example, we shouldn't hate sin. Um, I don't think it says that we can escape hate, hate, actually. And this is one of the things I kind of want to defend about hatred, is to say it's actually a necessary feature of our development. Freud says this, hatred comes before love and is not opposed to it. Because if you think about those developmental stages where the child is pushing his or her parent away saying, I hate you, mummy, or, you know, being violent towards toy. It's, it's a, it's a necessary stage, just like primary egotism, where you're saying, I'm not that, you know, so that role of negation in the formation of any healthy character is, is, is necessary, right? It's, it is necessary that we hate and the criminalization of hate, particularly for people expressing opinions, whether they be, be religious or scientific or, or bad opinions, you know, whatever, like annoying opinions, um, is very, very, very dangerous. And I think calling things hatred when they're not. But then at the same time, I also want to say we must defend the right to hate as well. So I, it's not an elimination of hatred, but rather um, avoiding its misplacement or its or its misconception on, by the state. You know, when the state starts telling you what hate is, that's when you have to run. You know, like that's absolutely yeah. yeah. I so I had a, a my 
my more kind of complicated follow-up or kind of a sidestep was, so I know very little about, and well, I very little is exaggerating about Girard, um, but my kind of thoughts about evil were um, very much shaped by um, by Hannah Arendt's um, point about the banality of evil. And, um, and despite the fact that I think it's been kind of, um, it's been... Um, intri- and I wonder if this is actually part of. Um, I wonder if this is actually part of what you describe, because what's interesting to me is that um, her insight seems to have been occluded. Um, you know, kind of since she wrote the piece Eichmann in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, there's been much more kind of criticism and pointing out that Eichmann was, you know, kind of historical and biographical criticism, pointing out that Eichmann was in fact very ideologically committed anti-Semite. He wasn't just a kind of um, a um, a kind of a simple-minded bureaucrat. And so there's been, it seems to me, like a, a concerted effort to repress um, that kind of greater Entian insight about evil being something which is um, profoundly banal, um, which mm. is to say not kind of, it seemed to me like she was kind of um, struggling against the theological idea of evil um, as something which is so kind of awesome and overwhelming that it has to be, it can only be attributed to some providential agency or some kind of divine plan which is remote and opaque to us. And so it kind of gives evil this, um, it endows evil with this um, uh, kind of tragic grandeur um, and this um, tr- kind of um, glamour. And so her kind of claims about the banality of evil were to um, deflate deflate it, essentially, and to take away its kind of grandeur. And that seemed to me tremendously kind of important. And it seems, again, kind of important to me that mm. that kind of insight seems to be occluded. Anyway, I suppose I wanted, you know, because this is territory I'm not familiar with, so I wanted your thoughts about that. Um, but also um, if there's any kind of uh, relationship between... Um, the Arentian uh, model of evil, if you know, if I've portrayed it justly, um, and the uh, Girardian kind of account that you've um, sketched out for us. Yeah, I mean, just on the first point, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we might think of evil as being historically passé, theological, and so on, but on the other hand, it's very clear that in reality, liberal post-war politics has increasingly operated with a transcendent notion of political evil, which shapes everything <laughs> that happens. And, you know, we whether we call this Hitler or Nazism or fascism, you know, it's it's very, very clear that there is an absolute limit beyond which we liberal societies cannot go, even in terms of trying to understand it. And the reason why Arendt is, is you know, increasingly sidelined is because precisely she tries to understand Nazism. She tries to understand institutional conformity, even when people or especially when people are doing horrific, horrendous things. It is so much easier for all of us to say, oh, the Nazis were just evil. You know, this but this doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you anything about them personally or structurally, materially, economically, socially. Um, it, it doesn't explain like the victim mechanism. It's very obvious that, that Hitler and others were were describing Germany as a victim. Right. And this is really important for and especially today when victim politics have uh, enormous power 
Um, Ministers for victims. Well, yes, as to go back to precisely this. But the victim, Judith Judith Schlar makes this point as well. The victim can be extremely cruel. The victim is not protected from his or her own capacity to be evil. And in fact, often um, it's exacerbated precisely by the idea that they're innocent and therefore they're allowed to do whatever they want. Um, And it's very clear that when Hitler and the other Nazis invoked uh, German punishment at the hands of Versailles and, you know, sought to blame um, not only Jews, but Jewish people, especially for sort of conspiratorial, you know, operations against Germany and that Germany needed revenge. And, you know, this is a victim mentality um, that becomes a dangerous, murderous, genocidal machine. Right. And to try to understand the way in which bureaucracy functions as uh, protection and exacerbation of that um, evil and that murderous uh, victimhood, um, you know, sort of image of the world, this vision of the world um, is precisely what you're not really allowed to do, because if you can't invoke (laughs) the transcendent evil, which we can't explain, um, you can't necessarily justify your own politics, particularly when it has things in common um, with that politics. Hmm. So I suppose, but then are you, do you see yourself performing the same move then? You're seeking to critique this transcendent idea of evil, but using um, the kind of Girard and the um, the some of these kind of Christian, these kind of basic Christian ideas, you're trying you're trying to do the same thing to take away the transcendence of evil, given the kind of the um, liberal response to it today? I think politically, yeah. I mean, I think there's a bigger question about evil, which is something like there is just, there are just things like, you know, when we talk about Fortuna or like we can't explain and we can't justify, if you see what I mean, like there is no explanation for the whole, right? And and when everyone, when anyone tries to give you an explanation for the whole, they're probably not... uh, thinking critically (laughs) and we should be very suspicious about people that try to give us a worldview that explains everything um, because there are always holes in knowledge and and so on so I think at at the sort of cosmic level uh, we could say there is a sense in which certain things will remain necessarily hidden from us and and obscure and, and we can't explain and this would include terrible things happening to people who don't deserve it but on the political level given that we're talking about what human beings do to each other <laughs> um, in uh, relation to particular systems, then I think we can um, try to attempt perhaps different kinds of solutions, whether we look to a psychological or just consider it for a bit, whether we look to bureaucratic institute, you know, descriptions of what systems do to people, um, the role of power, the relationship between power and truth and, and all of those things. So, yeah, I, I think we should try to understand it. I think I don't think we should simply put it to one side and say this is no longer a useful question mm. because uh, it's, yeah. But precisely in its attempt to explain it, we, we, we then don't make it like a lump of evil. We don't say, oh, there's this thing over here that just exists and we can't explain. It's, it's to unpick that. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, so I mean, to bring this back a bit to, to hatred and, and political hatred, a lot of the discussion today about the kind of new culture wars or just the way of hyper politics, if you want to call it that way, um, it describes it in terms of it being Schmidian, 
in, in mm. terms of it being um, politics devolving into a simple friend-enemy distinction. That's all that there is to it. There are no higher ideals or common interests that we could rally around. It's just um, my gang versus your gang. Um, and, and sadly, that seems to be increasingly descriptive of, of the world. It's not something that I would want to endorse. But one thing that I found interesting, um, kind of looking back at Schmidt, is that um, he makes a distinction between hostis and inimicus. So the kind of public enemy and the private enemy. And the, and the public enemy is something that, you know, in, in, in his view, would be the enemy of the state, um, something that would be combated, whereas the inimicus would be your private enemy, which might have like a more effective element to it, more it's someone you, you hate, um, your private enemy. And not to buy into kind of Schmidt's vision, not least because of its kind of a defense of, um, of the fascist state, ultimately. So that's not, that's not the purpose here. But it's more that, you know, the Schmidt, the description of today's politics as Schmittian founders a little bit on the fact that the, the public-private distinction has collapsed. And if that collapses, that also means that his own distinction between hostis and, and inimicus, the public enemy to be combated and the public and the private enemy to be hated, also doesn't work anymore. Um, and so I, I find that kind of I find that kind of troubling, and maybe to a certain extent explains why we have difficulty with a kind of I don't know a kind of productive hatred of the enemy, you know, or or whether because I think I mean this refers back to, to I think the question Phil asked you Nina about whether you know should we indeed hate our enemy, um, and it strikes me that I mean I'm trying to think this through out loud that the you know the the repression of political hatred that there used to be has now kind of foundered that no longer holds that we're all kind of encouraged to hate our our proximate enemy whoever it is oh the the person who you know drives a pickup truck or the person who drinks or you know organic tea whoever it is you know you you, you have to hate that enemy um and it seems to me that there's a, an absence of um that maybe politics is is too bound up in the hatred of the private enemy um rather than kind of focused on the construction of what we actually want Maybe that's maybe a very abstract way to put it, mm. but it's not focused on basically on institution building, right? On like, what are the institutions that we want to build for our good society? It's just about hating the the enemy. And often, very often, it's kind of a approximate enemy. It's not really the, the, the enemy to combat it, the person who's actually really in power or, or the structures that sustain that power, but very often just about, you know, the, the person who <laughs> who consumes the right, the wrong type of product, which is not the, the side that you're on, you know, the other fan. Yeah, it's a really good question. I was thinking about Schmidt um, on the way back home today. Um, it's, yeah, you reminded me of Jean Genet. Jean Genet has this incredible conception of the enemy um, where he, he, he writes this sort of bizarre text that invokes like Prince Philip or like some crazy royals and where he starts talking about he wants the declared enemy. Like he wants somebody who says, I'm your enemy. And he wants to fight to the death with with what he just says is the declared enemy. And using that, it's interesting to think about how these supposed enemies are all sort of tacit. They're all implicit. And I, yeah, I think your point about the collapse of the, the public and the private is so interesting. If we think about the therapeutic and the model of the self and the kind of um, what it means then to accept <laughs> one's own increasing privacy as one's own potential enemy as well, right? Because this is a very difficult thing for people to to cope with. And, and then you end up in this 
permanent situation of kind of projection, right? Mm. It's not me, you know, even though people... Externalizing, are sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort of projection, externalizing and, you know, reversing what's going, you know, oh, no, I'm the victim. Like, you're the, <laughs> you're the oppressor or the abuser. Um, and this kind of disavowal, actually, of one's own capacity, which is very unhelpful for thinking about politics as well, because then you end up with people who are completely... Um, dispossessed of any um, fight, if you want, or any sense of their own capacity. You just have kind of um, subjects who are afraid to uh, express uh, anything that might be conceived negatively. You know, and I see this a lot in mm. quite a lot of younger people who are very, very anxious about being thought of as bad people, whatever that means. Um, but this often manifests itself is in a, just a complete um, um, reticence about expressing a view or judging or commenting or you know and and this was sort of happening to students as I you know I left university teaching about five years ago but you could see you could feel it and I'd been teaching for 13 years and over that time this reticence had just completely crept in whether it was people were afraid to say the wrong thing in case they were, someone might film them someone might tweet about it whatever it became um <coughs> you know stultifying uh, and awful for them as well to feel this level of potential social faux pas judgment. Um, but obviously, unless you make mistakes, you're never going to um, improve your thinking. Um, it's, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. But I think this this point about the kind of Schmittianism, yeah, I mean, black and white thinking is easier. <laughs> it's much easier than... <laughs> yeah. than, than, than sort of understanding one's own complicity, one's own, you know, bad behaviour or whatever. Um, it does, I don't just mean that at the individual moral level, but I mean structurally as well, you know, the how to disentangle yourself if you can't really, um, you know, we, we're in very, very complicated systems. I mean, if you read the, um, um, you know, the great book about risk, the risk society, um, you know, we, it, modernity becomes this endlessly complicated and variegated project about ameliorating risk, but by creating more risk. And you can't um, conceptualise um, the extent to which processes even function um, in relation to one another. Um, and so there's that kind of, yeah, intrication, hatred then of the hatred of the other then seems like a, a, a shortcut. <laughs> problem <laughs> i think yeah that's true um tangling with contradiction is is um kind of it's difficult um it's it's more demanding um just on the on the thing about you know uh, younger people being unable to um feeling they're un unable to express themselves um I, we are going to come back to this um because we are going to talk about gender divergences in voting behavior which is a really wonkish way to put it but um suddenly across many different countries, countries which are very different from one another, women, uh, young women are voting for liberal or progressive parties to a much larger degree than young men are who are increasingly voting for conservative parties. There's a huge amount to unpick and we're going to be doing that over on the second part of this episode at patreon.com slash See you there. Okay.